Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, guest host Tim Davis and I sit down with Mike Thompson, a teacher of 22 years here in Alaska. We get into his upbringing and how it's influenced him as a teacher, how if he doesn't cover an important historical event in class, there's a strong chance students will never know about it, and also a lot of stories about students. Considering Governor Mike Dunleavy's proposed budget cuts to education, I think it's important for Alaskans to hear what goes into being an educator in our state and everything they're able to accomplish on their already limited resources. Okay, on to the company men. Shout out to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, and Sharon Liska. Thank you all for your continued support. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. Everyone I just gave a shout out to has subscribed to the Crude Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's how this podcast is able to continue. It makes it easy for listeners like yourself to support the Crude mission of preserving and defining Alaskan cultures through the conversations we have on this podcast. So if you like Crude Conversations, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash crude magazine. Okay, back to Mike Thompson, the teacher. I think right now, Alaskans need to make a choice. The education of Alaska's children and youth or a big PFD check. It amounts to long-term goals versus short-term benefits. I will always be on the side of education because I believe that if we want to be better tomorrow, then we need to be smarter today. And that means making decisions that will benefit the next generation and the generation after that and so on. So any chance I get to podcast with a smart teacher or educator, I'll take it 100% of the time. That said, here's Mike Thompson. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Okay, I think I think we're just gonna we're just gonna drop into this, Mike. All right. Okay, so I heard you and Tim talking about you could have retired two years ago. Yeah, it's a uh, it's scary to think about how old I got that fast. I remember when I first moved up here, I had no. To be perfectly honest, I didn't want to come here. I was I was in uh, with my uh, girlfriend in uh, college, and she wanted to move to Alaska. I wanted to move to Hawaii, and I'm here. And I wasn't bitter about it. It was experience. I said I'll do five years, and then next thing I know. 20 went by and I was like, you know what? I need to start, like I was talking with Tim earlier, I need to recapture my own time because I just blinked and I'd spent years doing stuff for other people. And I was like, I'm going to start doing for me. So I, uh, it happened when her brother, actually can get dark for a second, a year and a half ago, her brother died suddenly, like down in Sitka and he was 51. And I was like, my gosh, I've spent a lot of time just doing everybody else's stuff. So I was like, no, I'm going to refocus and whatever I want to do, I'm going to make sure I do it. Like, uh, I'll set goals every year. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And retirement's one of my goals. And I'm trying to get to that point where I'm going to live the life the way I want to and, uh, let my kids see that. And sometimes they're going to get butthurt about stuff. Like dad's not doing this. Dad's not doing that. But you know what? I'm the model how you should live, at least from my perspective. And that's what I'm going to do. Well, but you didn't just move to Alaska. You moved to rural Alaska. Yeah. I, uh, it was weird because I was really dumb. 
I was really dumb and naive. Like you, you come out of high school and you're like, okay, I'm life's just going to work out somehow. Like I, I don't have to plan. Things will just go. So I went to college and then I, we moved up here and I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. I had a car and two cats. And <laughs> I drove up here and uh, it was like humbling. I was still too blind to know I didn't have any money when I got there. But and it's, what village was this? I went up to Stevens Village. So moved to Anchorage. We actually I didn't have a house. We camped for like the first two weeks. I was getting out of a tent like we're in a suit to go do interviews. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it was weird. I'm like I'm like I was sitting there. I remember sitting there in the interview, and uh, the principal would talk, and I'm not even really paying attention. I'm just trying to think. Like, do I smell? Like, does he does he know <laughs> that I don't have anywhere to shower? <laughs> so, so I finally, I started subbing and wife, she was working at a women's shelter and uh, I started subbing. My very first sub day was over at Clark Middle School. In the first class I ever subbed, a fight broke out between these two girls. And I was like, oh, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, yeah, I do know what to do. I used to work at a group home for like male offenders when I was in uh, in college. So I broke it up and used like those little techniques and they were impressed, like, yeah, you should come back. I'm like, I don't know if I want to come back. And this was the first day. But then wife moved to Homer, and I took a job out in the village, and it was 90 miles northwest of Fairbanks, uh, population 83. and Population Mike. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen because I, uh, I grew up in, in a town right outside of Chicago called Waukegan. And right at, like, I grew up where white people were kind of the minority, so everybody I knew was either Hispanic. My high school right now, my old one is 74% Hispanic. And so I was used to that. And then I went to college and it was the complete opposite. And it blew my mind. I, I met people who had never met a black person before. Their only experience was from TV. So that was like Yo! TV raps and cops and the Cosby show. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was weird. And I had a lot of anger issues because, well, I just had anger issues. But I didn't know how to deal with people who treated me like National Geographic. I was walking down campus one day. I remember I just felt a hand on the back of my head. And I turned around to some girl I never saw before. And she's like, your hair's so cool. And I, I swore, like, this isn't a, a petting zoo. She was just so intrigued. <laughs> Can and you I, describe your hair at the time for at me? The time, my hair at the time was... You're, you're dating me, Tim. <laughs> I grew up at first, I had an afro. My hair was always different. Like when you guys met me, I had dreads. And I had dreads yeah. for like 20 years. Yeah, yeah. But when I was in high school, like you know those pictures you never want anybody to see? I had this hairstyle called the Gumby. So it's like a triangle on your head, but it's like lopsided. And wait for it. The worst part was if you saw it from the back, I had a braided tail with beads in it. <laughs> because... That sounds like a, a haircut kids would wear nowadays yeah it would come back they it shouldn't but (laughs) (laughs) but it it just wasn't it wasn't a good look but when i when i came up here i was used to being around like a lot of white people and then i went out to the village and i was a minority again but i'd never been a minority like that because out of the 83 people in the village there was one white lady and she taught kindergarten through third grade and was a sped teacher I was, again, one of the only black people a lot of them had seen than everybody else with Athabascan. And it was weird. I didn't get any racial discrimination, but I got urban discrimination. Like, you know how people, like, if Alaskan goes somewhere else, you get a lot of dumb questions, like, what is Alaska like? I got a lot of dumb urban questions, like, were you in a gang? 
<laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, and I was, because of I, what they've seen on TV. Yeah, because what they've seen on TV, and I and I got a sense it wasn't because I was black. It was just because I was from the Chicagoland area, and so it was a lot of feeling stuff like that, or like, do you know any rappers? And I'm like, I don't know how I want to answer this because yes, I do, but I don't want you to think everybody just knows rappers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so it was it was pretty amazing coming from. Like an urban experience, a college experience, just dropped in the middle of nowhere. Because I'd never, I'd never seen anything like that. Like most people in lower 48, I never thought about Alaska ever. Like it was something that I saw briefly when they did the national weather. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like America to me until I got up here. And I'm like, whoa, this is pretty crazy. And now, I, what, what year was this? This was 1997. Um, I taught out in Stevens Village for for one year. And I would have stayed out there longer, but there's... It was a culture shock for me because I didn't know that subsistence lifestyle was a thing. Like I'm an, I'm from an urban area. It took me until middle school to realize there could be space in between towns. I just thought it went from one town to the next because that's what it was down there. Yeah. And now I'm up here seeing people like fishing for survival and there are no grocery stores there. And I'd be sitting there watching Alaska Rural Communication System, the TV stations up there. Mm-hmm. And... I'd see a commercial for something that looked good, like some food, but I can't get it. And that I had to plan. Like back home, I would just go to the store if I'm hungry. I actually had to make a plan and order my food like a week in advance and hope the weather was good so it could be delivered. And it was just mind blowing that I'm just struggling with this for a year, but these people have been doing it for their whole lives. And I thought I was tough coming from an urban area, but, you know, I would die in 30 minutes out there in the interior somewhere. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to understand the situation in which you found yourself in Alaska. Yeah. You know, so, so it was your wife's decision? Yeah. She, uh, she came up here to visit uh, her brother in Sitka, and she fell in love with it then. That was when she was in high school. And, and Sitka's a lot different yeah. <laughs> than where you moved. Sitka's yeah, it's a little different. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and she kind of played me. Because she's like, yeah, we can move to Alaska. And I didn't know, I just assumed stupidly that everywhere had roads, that you could drive anywhere you wanted to. Yeah. And so I didn't even look at a map. I was like, I'm going to go to Anchorage. She she came up early to Sitka. So I drove up on my own, hopped on the ferry and met in Haines. I was like, man, this is amazing. This is beautiful. I could live here. And then we started driving. And I didn't realize that, uh, don't get me wrong, the state's beautiful. It's a lot more beautiful than everywhere else I've been. Mm Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize it got less beautiful the further inland I got. And then I hit the valley. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> What's going on? Those mountains are still are nice, but I missed. What was Haynes? I thought Haynes was Alaska. Sort of like listen to an album. The first song is really dope. And then it's like, okay, what's going on? Um, but then we moved here. <laughs> so we moved here, got to Anchorage. And I remember, I can't remember what it was. Uh, we were looking for a place to stay, so we stopped at somewhere over by Spinard to get some food. And I said, let me get a newspaper. And on the paper, there's like an article about somebody who'd been dismembered. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why does this happen here? Like, because I'm paranoid now because my family's all gone. I'm up here, just me and wife and, or future wife. And, but that was my, my indoctrination into Alaska. When I came back here and I started teaching the schools, I started seeing kids talking about gangs and, and drugs. And I was like, you know what, this is real familiar. I'm like, I'm like, I think I can relate to some of these kids with some of the problems they're going through, which was completely different than issues that kids in the village had. Because I grew up in an area where if you want a job, you can find a job, you can get a summer job. In the village, there were like five, maybe six jobs total. 
Uh, there were three teachers, a custodian, a lady who ran, who ran the airport and the post office, and the lady who ran the laundromat. So every kid, you're either going to be unemployed or you got to leave home. And I'd never thought about that before, that you could be forced out of where you grew up out of your traditional homeland just because there are no opportunities. Uh, but I met some amazing people there, and I still remember all my first students who were up there, um, the ones who were hard on me, the ones who were good to me. And, you know, one of my favorites, uh, she actually, uh, she was in the eighth grade and, uh, her name was Joy and she was a little nervous. She had just moved up from Fairbanks and trying to get used to a new community and she kind of fell into a bad way, but then she got her act together. You have students and Tim, you know about this. You'll see students and you're like, I wonder, I hope they make it. I hope everything works out. And I was sitting there one day when I lived over in Government Hill, this was over a decade later, and I'm watching the news, and I see her on the news reading a poem at AFN. And I'm like, whoa. So I remember her mom worked for the state, so I contacted mom, and mom said, yeah, she's been trying to get in touch with you for years. So she was down there at AFN, so we got together and had lunch. And she's like, yeah, I just want to let you know everything worked out. I uh, got my act together. She actually went to a Native American boarding school down in, I think, New Mexico, caught up all her credits, got a scholarship to Dartmouth, <laughs> and that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Went there, did a, a six month internship in Africa, I think, with environmental studies. And then she moved up and was working back in the community. And then she became a city councilwoman up in Fairbanks. I'm like, just all these opportunities that she was able to find coming from a small village of like 83 people. Yeah. So it's easy for me to look, look at my students today and say, what's your excuse? <laughs> you know, what's stopping you from doing something when other people, everybody has struggles. And it's a cold world. And I tell my students that it's, it's easy to get down because everybody has hard times. The world generally doesn't care about your hard time. They feel bad for you, but they feel great for you when you overcome something because everybody has to overcome something. You know, the last thing you want is to sit there and feel like you let life win and you missed out on opportunities. So every time I have students like that, I like to point it out. And actually today I went to uh, AMYA, the Anchorage Military Youth Academy graduation, had some students graduate today and mm -hmm. just watching them and seeing the transformation, like kid who couldn't stay in class, a kid who was fighting with their parents, kid who was into drugs and alcohol and just see in 22 weeks, they're like a different person and for the better. And it's, it was, it was emotional for me, like just seeing the growth and seeing the parents get happy for them. And, you know, a lot of kids feel like they've lost opportunities because of their background and their situation. Um, like I've seen some kids in situations, 13 to a house. I've had kids, like their room, they sleep in the bathroom. So like in the middle of the night, if somebody gets up and has to use the bathroom, like, okay, watch out. You have to head out because I have to use the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And they come to school and they're some of the happiest kids you'll ever see that they're not letting their current situation get them down. And it's, it's important for me to remember because I'm privileged now. I grew up in a rougher environment um, but my choices were pretty much my own, which made my life hard. These kids have a hard life and they're making the best of it. They just need to go that next step and figure out how do I go from here? How do I turn my positive energy into like a positive future? And that's, that's the tricky part. So and as an educator, that, that one year in the village, you would say it's fairly influential in the way you teach now. Yeah. 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 I, um, it was the hardest job I've ever had in my life. Um, I taught eighth through 12th grades, all subjects. And Tim, you know, like when you went through teacher college, you learned to, like social studies. I learned history. I had to teach history, math, science, PE. I remember once I was sitting there 
And in a 15 minute stretch, I was helping kids with math. I was helping another kid choose classes for, or uh, figure out their transcript for college. And then the toilet was clogged, so I had to go fix that. So like all in 15 minutes, I'm doing everything. And I created, I didn't have it out there before, in-school suspension. So I'd sit there, if a kid was messing up, I'd like, okay, in-school suspension. Basically, i just send him up to the attic, like a balcony. <laughs> so I set up a little desk and some chairs. And then the principal at the time, like, that's a good idea. And she's like... I'm going to start sending my kids to you. I'm like, but you're the principal. <laughs> no, she's like, no, my kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was kind of weird. Like I knew, um, I'm glad I had that year because it taught me how to take care of things on my own. Like even today, I don't even send kids to the office. I deal with everything myself because I had to learn um, that the principal that I was with, I knew I was in trouble the first time I got up there. I landed in the village uh, I was walking there, giving me a tour through school, and she's talking to this lady, and she introduces me to her. She's like, yeah, she's the president of the school board here. And her next line was, as I'm standing there with her, the principal, and the head of the school board, and she said, yeah, we're having a dispute. Um, we need you to solve it. She said, listen to our arguments and tell us who's right. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, I just got here. Both of you can fire me. Why would I make this choice? And at, from that point, I said, you know what? I've been lucky in Anchorage to have good principals and administrators, but I can't count on it. And kids respect it more if I can handle it myself, if I feel like I'm not always running to somebody else to solve, solve my problems. How important is that, do you think, as a teacher to be autonomous? I think it's really important. Like, for example, everybody has their own style. I have an intern right now. He's my fifth intern I've had so far. And I tell them I'm not trying to create mini-me's because kids, I have kids who love what I do. And I have kids who don't like the way I do it. But they have to learn how to handle it. But the teacher has to feel free that they can choose what they want to talk about and how they want to talk about it. Like I teach history and Tim, I know you teach history. You're kind of like a god because... Yes, yes, I am. I <laughs> yeah. you notice that. Like I'll sit there, like I, I tell my students, I love history. I hate teaching it because it keeps happening. Like when I started in 97 and 98, 99, that was pre 9-11. So when, 2000, when the terrorist attack happened in 2001, that was current events to me. My kids now, they were born the year after. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they have no concept. So I take it seriously and I say, you know what? Okay, what am I going to teach them? But I know there's stuff I have to cut out. I can't get in as much depth. So that's the God aspect. And it's humbling that if I don't cover that, they'll never get it. They'll never hear about it. They'll never think about it. So I take it seriously in terms of how I weave that in. But I also think about it the way that I needed in high school. The way I grew up in high school and some of the bad teachers I had and some of the good teachers I had to teach me uh, what I should do. I had a history teacher in high school. I thought he was brilliant, but he was really boring. He just talked the whole period in a monotone voice. But the information was so good. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I finally opened up the book. He was, had just been reading to us all year. <laughs> so he, like, this is what's been happening. I just thought he just put things together well, but he was just reading the whole book. And there was no connection. So what I do in my classes, I say, okay, what would have gotten through to me? So every single history class or government class, I start off with a question on the board. And I take what I want to teach them and I say, all right, how can I connect this to the real world? And that's what the question's about. Can you give me an example? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm glad we're doing a podcast. The question for government class today was, how do we define press in the 21st century? And the kids had to sit there and I'd let them brainstorm, like, what do you think is press? And then we broke it down, like, where do you get your information? 
And they're like, okay, I social media, magazines, and newspapers. Uh, some kid said Fox News. Another kid, kid said a newspaper. Yeah, he's. Okay. Yeah, he. Uh, I think he was just trying to show off. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. But then we started breaking it down even further. Like, what is news? And then we got into the whole conversation of fake news. And then we're looking at examples. Is news fake, or is that a deflection people use if they don't like the news? Mm-hmm. Like, if I were, I love a wife. If I were cheating on my wife. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to get heavy. Yeah. <laughs> this is the last sentence yeah. ever said yeah. in a marriage. <laughs> but if I were cheating on my wife and I didn't want to get caught, and she says, wasn't that, I thought I saw you walk with some woman. Fake news. That can be a deflection. Like, oh, don't believe those people. It's a distraction. So we'll take something like that and then we jump into freedom of the press. We'll take other examples where I'll ask kids, like um, my other history class, we're talking about the Great Depression. And we'll talk about if you had to sacrifice one key aspect of survival that you spend money on, what would it be? Would you sacrifice your phone? Uh, would you sacrifice your car? And then we say, okay, they start talking about what they would sacrifice. Okay, then how would that impact your life? And then we'll jump into things there. I always try and find a connection. We're always doing a current event tied in. And I like to give kids leeway. Uh, I have a rule. I never tell them my opinions on any issue. My job is to teach them how to think, not teach them what to think. And they respect that because kids can call BS. They know when someone's pushing an agenda, whether they agree with it or not. I like to leave them guessing, but I always play devil's advocate no matter what they're thinking, especially if they're really confident about something. I challenge them and and poke them and make them think the other way because if you've come to a quick decision, you're not thinking hard enough, especially when it comes to big issues. So we do a lot of that in class and the kids get into it. And they know that if I don't think something's important, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't need to know it, but I give them tools so they can go out and start looking for this information themselves. So sometimes I'll throw out a little tease for them and they'll so go. So you're kind of teaching it. media literacy. Yeah. Yeah. We will, like we broke it down today. We went through, uh, it's kind of a crapshoot sometimes, but I, we're talking about press and some of them talk about getting their information from news sites. So I said, okay, we're going to go to three news sites and let's look at what the top three headlines are. And we went to NBC News, and they had the Robert Kraft thing, the Patriots owner. They had mm-hmm. R. Kelly, and they had something about uh, this woman from Alabama who joined ISIS. And then we went to CNN, and it went to Democratic candidates for the presidency in 2020, R. Kelly and the Patriots owner. They went to Fox News, and it was a big picture of, like, the Jesse Smollett guy, the guy from Empire. Mm-hmm. And then there was some other articles here, and then lower down, it was, it was uh, the Patriots owner. And we started breaking down, okay— what is news? Mm-hmm. And getting kids to think about what is news. And then they defined it. And I said, well, what's the difference between news and event? Because news is filtered to us by a lot of these big sites. They're sitting in media rooms across the country telling us what they think is important. And then we talked about the difference between newspapers and magazines and websites, because websites are driven by clicks. So when you buy a newspaper, you know, you're getting all the stories. And do you trust the quality of the newspaper and the reporting and the editorials versus now? I mean, I asked my students, which article would you click on? I said, the one for ISIS, the one for the Patriots owner, and one for R. Kelly. Overwhelmingly, they went R. Kelly and the Patriots owner. Mm -hmm. And then I asked them, well, which story do you think has the biggest impact on government and society? And they said, the ISIS thing. But based on what we click on, that's going to drive what papers want to report. So we started looking at it that way and like, okay, how can you find information that is really important? And we Mm -hmm. talked about the importance of big sites and small sites and how they have to work together. But the big thing is we have to understand that press 
is a crucial right to understanding all our other rights. And the kids are starting to get that and think about it a little bit deeper. This is your 22nd year teaching. Yes. So your job as a social studies teacher is different, I got to imagine, in yeah. some way. Or at least the the challenges you face um, teaching. At least for me, I mean, I just in the last 10 years, I've seen a change in, in how kids consume media. So can you talk about a little bit of that? Like, let's just go East when you first start working at East. Yes. Um, how has your job as a social studies teacher changed in this time? It's changed a lot. Um, like, perfect example, we were just talking about uh, ISIS and terrorism. I used to teach this class called uh, African Studies. And each region of Africa, we would dig into the people and the culture and the climate and the region and the history. And then we do a current event. So I did it like South Africa, I, the current event, we focused on apartheid and discrimination. In North Africa, we focused on terrorism. So I remember just sitting there being able to search on the internet. Okay, let me learn about terrorist sites in North Africa. And I don't do that after 9-11 mm-hmm. because <laughs> it's, it's opening myself up to a risk. But at the same time, people lean on fear so heavily that they will avoid knowledge to do what they feel keeps them safe. Like, uh, a couple of years ago, I was sitting there and we're teaching the, about freedom of religion. And I had this girl in class, she's Muslim, she's wearing a hijab, really nice girl, really bright girl. And she's talking about a time where she felt discriminated against, where people were not in class, but just in the community, were looking at her because she was wearing a hijab. We moved on, went on to class and it was fine. The next day after school, I got a phone call, and it happens from time to time, I got a phone call from a parent, from a one of my students in class said, yeah, I have a bone to pick with you. I'm like, okay, what's wrong? She said, why did you ask the Muslim girl how she was discriminated against, but you didn't ask the Christians how they were? And I told her, I didn't ask anybody. Students are free to volunteer information. And I let her talk because I knew where this was going. And within a couple of minutes, she started talking about how Islam is a religion of hate. They're all terrorists. And you know, I had to cut her off and politely talk to her. But in the circumstance, that's what kids are learning from their parents from an early age. They're learning what's right or what's wrong from their parents, even if it's a warped sense of what's right or what's wrong. Mm-hmm. It's easier to judge somebody based on preconceived information that you have about them as opposed to actually learn about the culture. So when it comes to just learning, just just learning facts, do you find that you're you're sometimes fighting your you're fighting the tide of what what all the other influences, not just parents, but like social media and, and what their worldview is as a teenager. Are you fighting that a lot? It's a, it's a mixed bag. I have some kids who come in and with just whatever theory they heard and trying, whether they believe it or not, they're trying to spread it. Yeah. Like um, when Kyrie Irving was talking about the flat earth thing. <laughs> and I'm just like, and I'm looking at them, do you really believe this? And they start saying all these things that they saw from this website. And I would stop them like, do you really believe this? Would you be willing for someone to read about your opinion 10 years from now that you really believe this? Because I want to know how strongly you believe it because I don't want to argue with you or discuss this with you if it's not something that's real. Mm-hmm. And for some kids on issues like that, it's okay, you know, I don't really believe it. I just thought it was interesting. But some kids, it's crazy what they will believe. Like, for example, in the uh, 2016 presidential election, I love teaching government. My degree is in political science. I hated it. Because it was so depressing. Normally when we're in class in government, class in election, kids will be like, I'm voting for so-and-so. I'm like, okay, why? And they'll say why they're voting for that person or the other candidate. That one, no one did it. Every time I said, who are you going to vote for? Some kids were like, I'm voting for Hillary Clinton. Okay, why? And they would talk about how much they hated Trump. Mm -hmm. And then the Trump people were like, how much I hated Clinton. There was no positive reason that they had for wanting to vote for someone. And 
it was tough because kids had bought into certain concepts. They'd say, like, for example, a big thing I had to stamp out in one class was the whole birther movement in terms of, yeah, the president bo- wasn't born in America. And I'm explaining to them the 14th Amendment. Well, he doesn't have to be. He was born in America. So let's start there. Hawaii is in America. But even if his mom gave birth in Kenya, for some reason, she decided to, to leave a country with an amazing healthcare system to go to Kenya to have a baby. She's still an American. So the kid's American. The kid's like, yeah, that makes sense. And then I have to explore, okay, so why did you believe that? And they're like, well, I heard it from this, someone I trusted. Or I heard it from a site. And one of the kids pointed out something interesting today. They said they get their news from word of mouth, mm-hmm. which is crazy yeah. to think about, just unverified sources, that they will take something that somebody they trust says, and they're just going to spread it without any, any concept <laughs> of what's real. So that's changed things a lot. And the polarization in terms of how some kids won't even look at other kids because they get so upset. I remember in the 2016 election, and this is why I love teaching, especially up here, because there's so much diversity of background. I had a kid who was a diehard Trump supporter. Every time we were talking about the election, he would hold up his binder that had a Trump pen sticker and he would like pump his fist in the air with it. But, <laughs> but I also had two girls in class who I'm pretty sure were, un, were undocumented immigrants. And the fear that they had about what may happen to us. And I remember them kind of hinting at it without talking about their own situation. Like, what might happen if this person is elected? Mm-hmm. And then the hatred they had, the legitimate hatred they had toward that kid because he was supporting someone who they thought was just attacking them on a personal and cultural and emotional level. And that's hard to get over. You can debate on what you want to do about, like for a lot of these kids, they just debate abortion. They're like 16, 17. Most of them, that's not a reality for them right now. But if that kid's talking about, yeah, deport them, and they're sitting there thinking about, okay, that's me. How do you get them to be civil? Because that's, that's a level beyond. Anybody can sit here and debate things in the abstract. But when you're talking about what's going to impact somebody's life, it, it, it's powerful. And I had a situation of years ago after Hurricane Katrina, I had a, a kid in class complaining about, um, he was complaining about uh, taxes going to help people in Hurricane Katrina. And he was sitting there like, yeah, I don't know why they're taking our federal dollars to help people who live in New Orleans. It's below sea level. They deserve what they got. We shouldn't be helping them. What he didn't know was there are two kids sitting behind him who lost their homes in Hurricane Katrina a few months earlier. And I let the class kind of go because I knew these kids. I knew how they would handle it. It was a brother and sister. The sister, her eyes kind of started to well up a little bit. And the brother, he, he was really eloquent. He said, I'm from New Orleans. My sister's from New Orleans. We lost our home. And the kid was like, oh. Because he started to realize that this is, these things happen to real people. And the kid broke it down perfectly. He said... We didn't choose to live in New Orleans. We were born there. But we pay taxes too. So if Alaska has an earthquake and it's devastated, our tax dollars go to help fellow Americans. You have an obligation to us like we have an obligation to you. And he kind of nodded and he started to get it. And that's the kind of environment I try and create where I just don't want them thinking that I'm the one who's going to teach them the lesson. They can learn a lot more from the kids who are living through these things. But it's a personal experience. If I can get them to feel comfortable sharing that, they're going to learn a lot from each other. So I think that's one of the cool things about Alaska. And, and um, Cody and I have talked about this before. I, you're in the top, one of the top three diverse schools in the nation. And yes. I'm in one of the other top three yes. diverse schools in the nation. So that's a really cool deal. Kids get exposed to these cultures and you you can't make those 
statements like the Hurricane Katrina kid made. Yes. Without, you know, someone is going to hear that and because there's so many types of people yes. in our buildings. And so tell me a little bit about your experience on that. I mean, do you think that 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 diversity, it exposes things for sure? Does it, it almost, to me, it feels like it almost shelters because like I, I meet everybody. Yes. Yeah. And I tell them, uh, I tell them that Alaska and especially East High and other schools that are just diverse, this isn't the real world. The real world has diversity. But the real world, in most communities you go, there's a majority. And the people who aren't in the majority feel it. So, like, I look around the classroom. I have a few white kids here, a few Pacific Islander kids here, a few Native kids, a few Hispanic kids, so on and so forth. But they still, they'll be friends with each other, but they're not really learning about each other's culture. They're ignoring the culture. They'll sit there. Like, I ask kids, like, when I teach uh, U.S. history when we get to Vietnam War, they know they're among people, but they don't know why they're here. They don't know anything about the culture. Um, like, for example, growing up in my hometown right outside Chicago, I learned a little bit about a lot of culture because my neighborhood was like a UN meeting. I, one of my best friends from Korea, <laughs> <laughs> one was from Belize, everybody was from somewhere. My neighborhood was kind of like Anchorage. But it took me going to college to realize that I had to learn to be an expert in another culture. Like, I had to sit there and master my customer service voice. <laughs> like, I remember walking in, like, as soon as I decided I wanted to teach, I, when I was in college, I said, I'm only going to get jobs working with kids. And I walked into this one place in La Crosse, Wisconsin, where I went to college. And I walked in, I had a lot of experience working with kids, day camps, summer camps. I was three and a half years into my degree for education. I was overqualified for this minimum wage job I was walking into. And I walked in there, and I asked for an application. I could see the lady sitting behind the counter did not want to give it to me. But she had to. So she gave it to me. And I filled it out. And I knew. I had a, a really good feeling. That as soon as I hand this to her, this is going in the trash. And then I had to couple that with the time. I don't know if you guys are familiar with DWB. Do you know what that means? I think. Is it driving while black? Driving while black. Okay. Um, I remember twice in one week in, in college, I got pulled over for DWB. I got pulled over once, once in Anchorage for DWB. And I remember when it happened, I was over on O'Malley and the Seward Highway, the old Seward Highway. And I was getting ready to go snowboarding. Uh-huh. And I was getting ready to drive out to Alyeska. It was probably, it was on a Sunday, probably around 11. And I was sitting at the stoplight and I saw a police car driving down Minnesota, turning on to, uh, turning north on uh, old Seward. And he looked at me and I've seen that look before. And he just looped around. I wasn't driving. I was at a stoplight. He just pulled around hit his lights and pulled me over. So I pulled over and I got the typical thing. If you get a DWB, there's a general rule that happens. They know how to say it in a way so that it's not, there's nothing you can really defend. He was asking me where I was going. I'm like, I kind of looked in the back and like snowboarding. And uh, he's like, license registration. He went and ran it and saw there was nothing, came back. And then he had to give me an explanation. Like, yeah, uh, well, you fit the description of somebody in the area, suspect. And I'm like, because I've heard that before. Every time I've been pulled over for that, that's boilerplate. Um, how can I fight that I don't fit the description? And it's just something I got used to. I had to learn how to master that. So kids here, they can deal with some discrimination, but some kids don't really know what it feels like to be a minority for two reasons. One, because it's so diverse. And two, a lot of these kids, once they leave school, they are only with their own culture. Like some kids, especially uh, more middle-class kids and kids with means, they can go out and they can go out and afford to do things where they mix with more people. Some kids... They go home and they just hang out with their family or they hang out with their group and that's it. So I actually did something after that uh, 2016 election because there was so much 
animosity with some of the kids, I started something new. Every unit, I switched seating charts. I forced them to sit with other kids. what's a unit? Like right now, we're doing the Constitution. Oh, I see. I yeah. see. Yeah. Okay. So then when we start the election, new seats. And I pick them, and I don't do it at random. I pick kids to sit next to kids of different cultures, different backgrounds, different political opinions. And I tell them, that's your seat for the whole unit. So whenever we do group assignments, that's who you're working with. Whenever we do projects, that's who you're working with. Whenever we do extra credit opportunities, that's who you're working with. Because I'm forcing them not to necessarily learn everybody else's culture, but to learn that regardless of the culture, we all have the same goals and interests. Everybody wants to have a good paying job. Yeah. Everybody wants to have a healthy family. Yeah. Everybody wants to have a place to stay and feel safe. So if once they can get past all the other stuff, um, it makes it a little easier. And kids, they complain at first, but then they just get used to it. They know they're going to have to work with other people. And uh, it's my part to try and get them ready because I know once they graduate, most people retreat to people like them. I haven't had an interesting political conversation with an adult in years because most of the people I hang out with, they all feel the same way I do. So what are we debating? Mm -hmm. You know, where a lot of these kids, they're set in stone. This is their only opportunity they're going to have to actually debate and discuss with people who are different. Because especially with the way uh, some of the media sites are now, you can program your news to your mood. Mm -hmm. If you want to feel good about the president, you can turn into Fox News. You want to feel like the president's doing a horrible job, you can tune into another station. So I'm trying to get them to, to think broader than that. You know what I've been noticing is that the attention that's been paid to the press, yes, it permeates so many different things. It permeates teaching, you yes. know, and it permeates the different things that are being taught. So you guys are talking about history and social studies, and you're bringing up the press within social studies. Yes. So I think that something that um, a lot of people in general aren't really interpreting from this is that it's not just about the press. It's yes. not just about the New York Times, the Washington Post. It's about like those things are are the baseline from which everything else, at least in this situation, yes. is being affected. It's some 1984 stuff. I mean, yeah. you kind of think about it. It's like I saw a tweet the other day taking a shot at like Saturday Night Live. It's like Saturday Night Freaking Live. Like yeah. they've been making political satire for for however many decades now, and 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 so it absolutely permeates into the classroom um, in everything we do and we say because. Now, when you think that the government's going to criticize that freedom of speech in that sense, you know, and, and I love what you said, Mike, about having the kids kind of guess where you stand on things. Yes. <laughs> and and because that, that kind of breaks some of that up and it's it gets to the truth, yes. gets to the actual truth and not be uh, blocked off by maybe uh, the agendas of various political parties. Yeah, it's it's amazing how it happens. Um I had a situation where I had to call a parent uh, last year. A kid who was in my class was having some issues, and we're talking about, he was asking me what I was teaching. And I can, I can tell when a parent's suspicious about what I'm teaching. And I talked about kind of things I'm talking about now, like how I teach it, and I'm not pushing an agenda, but I'm, I'm pushing content and development of the mind. And he's like, yeah, yeah, because I, uh, I know a lot of history teachers, they just go find uh, textbooks written by, uh, by China, and they teach kids to hate America. And I'm like... I don't know where oh. that came from, but it's, I have a good idea in my mind where that came from, but I don't know when the last time he had actually been in the classroom. A lot of the people who have these opinions, they haven't been in the classroom. A lot of people who are talking about um, negativity that they see on, for, for teachers or online or between different cultures and communities, they don't know anything about those cultural communities except for what they heard. Like I teach my students, brains are highly developed and 
our brains don't like gaps in information. So if I write a series of numbers on the board, like 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, and then I go to 35, 40, 45, and the kid's like, you forgot a number. I'm like, I did, but I knew your brain's going to fill in the information. And we do that for people. We look at people and we say, I don't know enough about that person, so let me size them up for safety. If I see a guy or anybody sees a guy wearing a MAGA hat, people have assumptions in their mind about that person. Mm -hmm. If somebody sees, like if that police officer who pulled me over, he saw me and I fit an assumption that he had. Did you have the Gumby at the time? I did not have okay. the Gumby. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> did you have the dreads? I did. Okay. I had okay, the dreads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh, I remember there's one time, like uh, I grew up, um, like I said, I had anger issues. I, I was not a good, I was not a good kid. I had a potential, but I was constantly finding the wrong way to do things. Uh, little known fact, the first time I ever skipped school, I was in the third grade, and I skipped three days in a row and went on a shoplifting spree. <laughs> what did you steal? Well, I'll, I'll sum it up. The reason I skipped school was because I wasn't doing my math homework. And my teacher told me, I think his name was Mr. Bartham, and he said, if you don't have your homework done tomorrow I'm calling your dad. And my dad's from the South, so that meant a whooping. So I went home, I did as much as I could, stayed up as late as I could, but I was only in the third grade, you can only stay up so late. So the next morning, instead of walking to school, I walked across the street to the park and I started doing my math homework. And I was panicking because the bell rang and kids were going in and I was still doing my math homework. And then it got quiet and I was just alone in the park. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> and, and so I'm in the third grade, I wasn't planning things out. So I got hungry, I didn't have a lunch, I was supposed to eat at school. So I walked on the road to Kmart and stole some food. And I'm like, that was easy. And that was fun. <laughs> so the next day I went back and I stole some candy. And then I, this one kid saw me on the third day. I'm like, why aren't you going to school? I'm like, James, come here. So I convinced him to skip with me. And then we went shoplifting. <laughs> and it's one of those... <laughs> it was the craziest thing. It was like the beginning of my crime career because it became so easy and I felt no consequences that it escalated quickly. Within a couple of weeks, I convinced this, this poor Jeffrey. Jeffrey was a new kid who had moved in the neighborhood. <laughs> he was a, a, a nice, quiet Korean kid. His family was really nice and polite. And I convinced him, hey, you want to be tough? You want to be cool? Come with me. And he didn't even know what we were doing. We walked into Kmart, and I saw this BB gun I wanted. And I grabbed it and opened the pack and just shoved it down the back of his pants. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, just shut up. Just shut up. Shut up, Jeffrey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... At the time, members only jackets were really big. Love members only. I'm sorry, yes. <laughs> and I had a black members only jacket yes. with the snaps on the shoulder. Yes. But uh, I was a criminal mastermind at this point. I had cut a hole in my jacket in the lining. That's where I dumped the stolen goods. Third you grade? Cut, whoa, Third grade. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, you cut a members only jacket? I cut a members only jacket. Oh, man, they have to understand, like, I had a lot of oh, <laughs> I had a lot of errors and judgment. I wasn't thinking clearly. Once on a separate situation, I'd walked into Kmart to steal something and I'd parked my bike outside. And when I came back, someone had stolen my bike and I didn't see the irony of it. So I just went and stole somebody else's bike. <laughs> it was like, oh, just get what you can. But I'd put the ammunition for the BB gun in the hole in the jacket. And as we're walking out, I'm smiling at Jeffrey, smiling at me. And then we feel security grab our shoulders. And Jeffrey starts crying immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Tough enough. <laughs> yeah. So we walk in and they find the gun immediately, and then they have, they have me empty my pockets, take off the jacket, pat me down, but they can't find the BBs. And I'm feeling like a genius. I feel like, you know, future Kaiser Sose at this point. <laughs> and they give me my jacket back, and they're sending me out. And as I'm walking out, I hear Jeffrey say through tears, check the hole in his jacket. Oh, 
Dang, Jeffrey's Jeffrey. a rat. <laughs> so they got me and they and they called my dad and my dad, like we all have dads, they get they get mad. My dad had crossed beyond and he came in, and he was calm like a serial killer. He just said, Go home now. And I knew that was the end for me. Cross the beyond. <laughs> and I I got home and I panicked. I knew he was gonna be home in like 15 minutes. And I said, I have to do something. This is gonna hurt. So I thought, again, I thought I was a genius. I took off my pants. I put on every pair of underwear I owned and, and put them back on. So I had like 15 pair of underwear on. <laughs> and he runs in and he grabs his belt and he looped it like in his hand in the air. It was like majestic. <laughs> and he grabbed my wrist and he just kind of started giving me a whooping on the, on the butt. But I'm a horrible actor, so I'm timing it wrong because it doesn't hurt. And he looked at me and I looked at him and he looked, I looked all pear-shaped. And he took his finger and poked me on the side of the butt and like, pull your pants down. And I pulled them down and I'm standing with my pants and my ankles and my underwear on. And I'm smiling like, like okay, this is a funny story. <laughs> he just grabbed them all, ripped them down, and just beat me like I was in slow motion. It was the worst whooping I ever had in my life. But it stopped me from stealing and for teaching some of these kids. Like, I know what some of them have been through. And I let them know that you know, there's a way out. Tim, I actually had a kid years ago... He was actually arrested in my class. That's intense. And yeah. we're sitting there in my government class. Um, when the principals walked in, he's not at the school anymore, and said, yeah, can I talk to uh, so-and-so? Can I see him in the hall? The kid was getting up to walk on the hall, and he saw the cops waiting for him in the hallway. He's like, oh, no, you're trying to catch me up. He started walking around the classroom, and the police walk in, and the kids are just frozen. They're, they're seniors, but they're like, what's going on here? And then they finally got him, they cornered him, they put him up against the, the cabinet and handcuffed him, took him out. And I'm like, okay, well, class is done. <laughs> Nobody wants to see what I, hear, hear what I'm talking about now. Yeah. So we had to talk about, okay, rights. And kids were legitimately upset. Like, why did that happen? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, you need to find out. I'm like, I do need to find out. And they went, to, were we safe? So I went down after school and I told the principal to come in the next day. And he came in with the SROs. And the next day, the kids let them have it. And I was so proud because they stood up to the authority. They said, you know what? We didn't know if he was a dangerous person. We didn't know if he was selling drugs. We didn't know if he had a weapon on him. Why would you do that and then not explain anything to us? And they're like, you know what? We're right. We'll have to do better with that. And the kids started to see, you know what? We can stand up to power in a safe way. Because a lot of those kids wouldn't have said that if it happened on the street. But it, since it happened in the classroom, like, you know what? I'm not going to get caught up with anything that I see that happens negative with police officers or authority here. I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. So... My experiences helped me a lot up here. I had a, I've had a few friends who were shot and a few friends who died through like gun violence. One of my best friends, um, his cousin was also a really good friend of mine. His friend, uh, he was killed while we were in high school. He was 16. He was a member of a gang in Chicago and he, he shot a kid in a rival gang. Uh, didn't kill him. Kid was in, ended up in the hospital and the police came to interview the kid, like, who shot you? And he didn't say who shot him, but he told the members of the gang who shot him. And they tracked down my friend, uh, DJ, and they shot and killed him. And like, mm. at 16, he was gone. So a couple of years ago, I was at school. Well, my intern was taking over and I was in the library working on something. And I saw counselors come in and a bunch of kids come in. And it's early in the morning, kids are putting their heads down. I can tell they're crying. And I asked the principal, what's going on? I'm like, yeah, uh, one of their friends was shot and killed this past weekend. And so... My intern had taken over, so I had the day to sit there and talk with some of these kids. Like, I'm not a counselor, but they could respect that I'd been through it. So I understood how it felt. And it wasn't about me providing answers or solutions. They just wanted to be next to somebody who had been through it before. What kind of things did they say? They were talking about how some kids 
they want to revenge. They're like, I want to know who did this. Well, I want to get this person. And then talking to them about that. Other kids just didn't know how to handle the fact that there's a big hole in their life now. Mm. And I was talking to them that, you know what? From time to time, I still think about DJ. It's hard. It's Im- um, impossibly hard right now. And I'm going to be honest, it's to be hard for a while. But you're going to start to learn from that. Not learning from his mistake, but learn to appreciate what you're going through. Um, like when I talked about earlier when my uh, uh, wife's brother died, it changed my perspective. And that was just a year and a half ago that I have to appreciate what I'm doing. Um, and being in Alaska helped me a lot. Like, I'll never admit it to wifey. I guess I'm admitting it now in a podcast. <laughs> but but <laughs> Alaska turned out to be really good for me because it pushed me out of a comfort zone. I could have happily gone back to Chicago and hung out with the same group of friends and never experienced Athabascan culture, never snowboarded before. Snowboarding changed my perspective on life in a way that I didn't think was possible. I grew up playing a lot of sports, competitive, I did basketball, football, track, all these things. And I wasn't enjoying it as much because I was enjoying the winning. I got so caught up in the winning that I won, you lost. Mm-hmm. And then snowboarding out with you guys, everybody winning makes everybody have a better day. If somebody goes out and they try, they don't have to land it, they try something new. That makes me want to try something new. And that opportunity came from here. And I try and do that same thing in my classroom. Like if some kid gets the right answer, we do a lot of team activities, a lot of team assignments. Let's all win. Let's all do this. Because... I'm not going to be happy if five kids get an A or five kids learn things. Let's all learn from each other. Let's all grow. So Alaska was huge for me that way. I got to ask though. Yeah. Do you remember the day we hiked turn again and you almost got in a hippie fight? <sighs> yes. <laughs> okay. Because you talk about anger issues yeah. and only Mike get in a fight. With a guy, because we're we're both soling up the skin tracks, <laughs> and I thought we were gonna have to leave. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the origin story of my anger issues come one. I had an older brother who was three and a half years older than me, who could always beat me up growing up, and the first fight I ever got in in elementary school was he was in the sixth grade, I was in second grade, and he told me to go punch this kid. I'm like, I don't want to punch this kid. I don't know who he is. And he's a big kid. He's like, you punch him or I'm going to punch you. And I knew he was serious because he punched me a lot. So I went over to punch this kid. And as soon as I hit the kid, and it's some weak little second grade punch, my brother came raining blows on this kid. It was a setup. My brother would just look for an excuse to fight this kid. My brothers used to do that. Yes. Thing. Or I've had <laughs> yeah. that happen with yeah. one of my brothers. Yeah. And I was sitting like, okay. So I have to fight. And I was always really small. So I, you know, people would pick on me. So I'd, you know, I'd be willing to fight. Sometimes I won. Sometimes I lost. But then, this one can take a, a negative turn too. Uh, <laughs> my parents from the deep south. Like my, my parents went to segregated schools their whole lives. And my dad's like deep, deep south. A town ironically named Liberty, Mississippi. And I remember this clearly, like him talking about growing up about, you know, People dropping the N-word on him and his dad while they're walking town. There's nothing they could do about it because the Klan was a real thing there. And we used to drive down south from Chicago from time to time. And on the way back, I remember once I was really little. And I didn't piece it together until he explained it to me when I was in high school. And my dad is a proud man. Grew up a farmer, Vietnam War vet. He was an airborne pathfinder. He's, he doesn't take anything from anybody. And on the way back, we're driving through some rural area in Kentucky or Tennessee. And it was late at night and we were hungry. So he pulled off at this uh, like greasy spoon diner, went in right quick, got some 
food, some hamburgers, and, and came back to the car. And as we're driving away, he hands us the food, and we get ready to eat. And I started crying. He's like, what's wrong? I'm like, there's no meat here. It's just bun and lettuce and ketchup. They chose, They didn't give us meat. And I was like, yeah, can you go back? And my dad's like, no, we can't go back. And my dad told me he knew what had happened. He knew he got a funny feeling when he walked in there, and they were playing some type of joke on him. And my dad, he said his instinct was to go back and beat the hell out of everybody. But he had his wife in the car and he had his kids in the car and he had to take it. And as I got older, my anger started to shift that uh, I don't have to take it now. <laughs> so I resorted to fighting when I felt disrespected on any issue. And it was a hard thing to deal with. And my kids will ask me because they knew, like, I, I'll share my background with kids. They'll ask me, when was the last time you got in a fight? I'm like, it's been a long time, but the last time I almost got in a fight... It was like seven years ago. And they're like, but you're a grown man. I'm like, yeah. And they said, what happened? They're like, I had some friends who were playing music downtown. I was walking downtown to uh, some bar to hear them play. And as I'm walking out to my car, I see some guy, probably in his 50s, looked like he'd been drinking, walking down like the middle of the road, kind of close to my car. I'm like, all right, I'm fine. I'm just going to get in. I'm going to avoid this guy. And as I'm walking, he looked at me and I had my dreads. He said, you f-word muslim go the f back to africa and i snapped i was i was ready to go right then and there because it just it all came back i will not take disrespect i can i have all the patience in the world for a kid because they're still developing but he, I mean, that's he not even just disrespectful though that's, that's like that's your yeah. anger is warranted yeah and i was mad and but i was willing to fight and i was sitting there and i started walking toward him because a lot of times a lot of people think they're tougher than they are. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I wasn't afraid to fight. And I wasn't thinking that he's probably too drunk or high to know not to fight. Because I started walking toward him, he started reaching in his jacket like he had something. I was like, you know what? Wife's at home. My first daughter is like 18 months. I can't be going to jail or getting injured or worse. But I was still mad. And I got in the car and I was driving away. And I was yelling at him and I looped around the corner. I saw him and I was yelling at him like, you know what? I need to calm myself down. I was ready to find this man and hit him. I was just driving around downtown. Like, where is this guy? And I called a friend I work with and he talked me down. He's like, just tell the police. And then it hit me again. And this is where the race thing comes in. I didn't feel comfortable as a black man pulling over downtown at 11 p.m. and flagging down a, a cop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, eventually I did. And the cop went and, and looked for the guy. I never heard anything back, but he's like, that's a cultural difference that happened. Like I was thinking everything came full circle the way I felt about what happened to my dad. So in those moments, yeah. do you feel like things haven't changed that much? They've gotten better. Like for example, like I've been teaching for a long time. I've, I have a small imprint on the community. I've like, Tim, you know, you go around, you see former students all the time. They're adults. If something like that happened to me now, let's say I was downtown and somebody yelled something. Let's say they assaulted me. There'd be a rally or something for me. There'd be flowers or something. Get well cards. I, I'd buy you flowers. Thank you, sir. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. So I think that aspect has changed. What I think hasn't changed is the concept of color blindness. My biggest pet peeve. Like, I don't see race. Yeah, you do. Don't lie to me. It's like saying I don't see your gender. And you have to see somebody's race. You have to see somebody's gender. You have to see somebody's income level. You have to see somebody's religion because that's who they are. So if I'm sitting there and I'm talking to somebody about race issues and they say, I don't see color, then you don't understand why I might feel this way in this situation. Like, for example, newsflash, I'm not Muslim, but even if I were, 
how would that make me feel less safe in society? Because it's not the guy I'm scared about. It's the reaction from the public that they don't believe what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. or They're not internalizing that it's actually a real thing for people. So I think that aspect is, isn't going well because people still just are quick to either one, lie to themselves or to other people saying, I don't see these things or these things don't matter to me. Well, it better matter to you because it's what I have to live with. So I think that's important. There weren't many black dudes in Alaska yes. in the half pipe. Yeah. I remember, I think, I, it's like, hey, it's Mike. You yeah. Know, I didn't, and that's yeah. how I met you yeah. was in the half pipe at Alaska. Yeah. The one, that, the cool one, the one across from chair four there. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty rad. Anyway. <laughs> one, um, one of the most depressing things about Alaska was most of the time everybody was great, but occasionally I got some racist stuff. But the thing was, it was from younger kids. I remember once this one little kid, he was on the chair in front of me. And as uh, he's getting off, he straps and doesn't say anything. And as he's riding down the mountain, I'm just sitting there waiting for the rest of my buddies to come off the chairlift. He's, he starts heading over uh, toward the cat truck. He's like, yeah, N-word. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and it was like, that was the present. Like how young? He was probably, I'd probably say uh, sixth, seventh grade. Like, and that was something that he was, was in his mind about, you know, was this some type of dare? Does he feel good about himself for doing this? I mean, he could be a good kid now, but... Probably well, not. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. probably a horrible human. Yeah. <laughs> but like, he clearly knew enough to do it as he was going away. You know, one thing that seems pretty consistent is that people seem to be willing to be ignorant when yes. they don't really have to face the reality of it. So if they can say something yes. shitty like that, yes. but then maybe they don't have to talk to you. Yeah. Or they don't have to, in the situation where you said the, the young girl's wearing the hijab. Yes. And, you know, the, the person is is talking to them. Or was it the, the ones from New Orleans? You know, they were, they're, they're communicating with the kid who yes. has these, like, these ignorant assumptions. Yes. Or these preconceived ideas. And then he's faced with the reality of what it is he's talking about. And then... That's when the understanding happens. Yeah. I guess the best way I could try and explain it is some people live their lives like they're in the comment section. That they can say yeah. things. Um, like, what was it? I can't remember. Was, I think it was a GM uh, auto plant somewhere in the lower 48. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, some employees or someone hung up some nooses in a, in a factory. Now, they wouldn't do it in front of anybody, but they're going to do it to kind of terrorize people. or Anonymously. Yes. Yeah. And that, I think that's what that kid was doing. Like, he's never going to see me again. He's not going to recognize me. I can say this. And I'm assuming he's probably going to tell some of his friends what he did. Because otherwise, I think you're just a, a crazy person to just do that at random. And I mean, he must be trying to impress himself or other people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's how it goes sort of, like I talked about in the comment section, where it's hard to be that cruel to someone in person. Yeah. Uh, actually, today at the AMYA ceremony, at the end, I, I was talking with uh, Lisa Murkowski, and she's going to be coming in uh, probably to my class or my government classes in the next month or so. And I commented to her, like, you know what? I wanted to thank you. And it's not about any policy you've done or position you've taken, but just the concept of civility, that civility is a leadership skill. Yeah. <laughs> and getting people to acknowledge that, that you can't be horrible to people. Mm -hmm. You can't just isolate people. That's not productive. And she's like, no, what? I, I appreciate that. Uh, I'd love to come in and talk to the kids. I want my kids to see that because they're, they're caught up in a soundbite culture where you can just say whatever you want because you aren't, uh, some politicians aren't afraid of the consequences. They know that no matter what, 
their district is Republican, they can always win. They can only lose to somebody who's more Republican. The same thing for Democrats. So people are going in opposite directions instead of closer. So anytime I can find adults that do that and demonstrate in their real lives, because, and Tim, you know this, as a teacher, a lot of kids, we're not real people to them. We're gods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he exists outside of the school? Yeah. I've had that happen before. I was sitting at the grocery store and like, Mr. Thompson, what are you doing here? I'm like, there's food here. You know, so, but I want them to hear that other adults can do this because some of them aren't hearing it at home. Like, um, <laughs> like I can't remember who said it was some comedian said this years ago. Um, and they're talking about, uh, LGBTQ plus issues. And they're like, some parents are comfortable teaching kids. It's okay to be gay or lesbian until their kid is gay or lesbian. <laughs> And then there's where the challenge comes. Um, some kids, some parents will teach their kids, it's okay, white or black or whatever. It's okay. You shouldn't discriminate against people until you bring somebody home who's not of your culture. And then the defense mechanism that they always tend to say is, I'm just worried about you and your safety. Well, you're worried about your own impressions at this point too, because there are a lot of dangerous things in the world. You're choosing this to say that this is the biggest issue. You know what I've always said, and I've said this a number of times in the podcast, is we look for band-aid issues yes right like so that's something that that a parent um if that's what they decide to worry about that's something that they can fix quote yes. unquote right but they can't fix like i always use like the national deficit right yes. this is insurmountable thing like we can't we don't want to focus on that yeah we definitely. don't want to focus on the fact that the the country is so unbelievably divided right now but we want to focus on you know what gender is on the bathroom yes. or, you know, who our, our daughters and our sons are going out with because that's within our control. Yes. And I have that pop up in class from time to time. Kids will say something like some sound bite they heard somebody say or some clip they saw on YouTube and they're like, okay, prove that I'm wrong. I'm like, it's not about proving they're wrong. It's about one, opening yourself up to understanding other people's situations. And I've used this example with my students from time to time. And they say, why don't you ever tell us your opinion? And let's say it's some junior girl. I'm like, okay, I'm well-educated, have my degree. I've been teaching a long time. I know a lot about a lot. I'm a 45-year-old black man. You are a 17-year-old white girl. We see the world differently. We experience it differently. Mm -hmm. I've taught for a long time. I still, to this day, have no idea what it feels like to be a 17-year-old white girl and never will. And so I try and get them to understand it doesn't matter what I think about issues. My biggest concern right now is my retirement. You don't even have a job yet. Mm -hmm. You know, your biggest issues, like I, I catch parents with this all the time. They say, well, my, why does my kid care so much about social media? Because as a kid can get blown up on social media just walking to class. Mm -hmm. It's a real fear for them. Um, one of my first uh, years teaching, I was sitting in class and I saw some boys passing something around. And I looked at it and I intercepted it was a photo negative. I'm like, what is this? It was a photo negative of some girl they had taken. And I'm like, oh, no. And it was like... But you have to think about how involved you have to be to actually get a photo negative. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, like it's a process, you know. Literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now, you know, with cell phones, I mean, kids can find themselves on camera at any point for any reason at any time. And it's a real concern. I'm an adult. Peer pressure doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Because if someone is trying to pressure me to do something, I just won't hang out with you anymore. Yeah. But these kids... It's not just now. It's like, you're going to be hanging out with this kid forever. And I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like in elementary school if there was social media. I remember this kid when I was in elementary school. 
grossest kid I've ever seen. <laughs> he would pick his nose like sensually, take it out, rub it on a crayon, connect another crayon, turn to a sandwich and eat it. Oh my God. And I was like, <laughs> I'd never seen anything like that before. And I'll never forget it. He could run for president. That's all he is to me is that kid. <laughs> you know, but if he, there was social media back then, He's done. Yeah, forever. <laughs> He's yeah. never recovering. Yeah. He would be single. <laughs> so you know, you know what I was I was thinking? Um, looking looking toward the future and thinking about how teenagers and the youth have their entire lives like on yes. the internet. You know, they're they're saying things and they're doing things that are undoubtedly a mistake. Things that we didn't we did, but we just did like in person. Yes. And then they're just kind of gone into the ether of time. Yes. Now those mistakes and those those things are like etched into you know forever and so i guess my question is is looking to the future like how do we how do we pick people to lead the country how do we pick people to just be leaders yeah yeah i think about it like there's nothing crueler in the world than an elementary and middle school kid <laughs> just in terms of their ability to disregard the feelings of other people. And, and I look at all these politicians have been caught up. Let's take the governor of Virginia, Ralph yeah, Northman. Exactly um, blackface generally isn't a good idea. No, <laughs> never. But never. everyone has done things they don't want anybody to know about. But a lot of us were fortunate enough that there's no social media that that doesn't impact us. I ignore the mistakes outside of like, let's say, murder, sexual assault, how have you grown since then? And can you demonstrate today that you understand that it was wrong? Like, my problem with the governor of Virginia wasn't that he wore blackface when he was in his early 20s. It's how he answered the question today. Yeah. <laughs> that was my yeah. issue, that he didn't seem to get it. Um, I try and tell my daughters and I try and tell my kids, you never want to judge someone based on their worst mistake. Your worst mistake doesn't have to define you. So you don't have to use that to define other people. I've done lots of things I'm not proud of. Telling a story can be a funny story. But if you see like video proof, that's hard to bounce back from. Um, I haven't always been a good person, especially when I was younger. But it's just stories that I tell with my friends. But if you saw a video of some of the things that we did or that other people have done, sometimes we can't separate that that someone could be that cruel and mean. And I think time factors into it too. Like if I did something messed up when I was in high school or college, that was 20 some odd years ago. But if I did something messed up a year ago, people say, okay, you can't use the defense of youth, that you should know better. Mm -hmm. And that's what made it tricky when I was teaching government in 2016 is I don't tell kids opinions, but at the same time, if a president or the candidate has said something there's no middle ground because you're still a moral authority. I can't advocate or I can't say there, there's a positive spin or interpretation on groping somebody, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially when you look at uh, the statistics in terms of uh, females and girls with sexual harassment. I don't want to defend that and I'm not going to defend that. But at the same time, learning through time. Let's, let's take the uh, gay and lesbian issues. Um, there was a time where it was just a common thing where everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of people use homophobic slurs like it was their job. And it was just what people did. 
um, growing up, I had a cousin who was gay and I looked up to him. I didn't see him that often, but he was a nice guy. He was always polite to me. He paid attention to me and made me feel uh, the younger cousins feel like we were important. Even though he was in his twenties, he listened to us. And then I started thinking about, okay, people may treat him poorly just because he's gay. But today, I, I when I was younger, I'm sure I said some homophobic things I'm not even thinking about, but I've grown. And I think we have to give people space to grow and understand that we all have our own baggage and that if we want a second chance, we have to give other people a second chance if they prove that they deserve it. So that's the key. That's great. I think the context of time is so important and it's, it's tricky. Like you said, there's what somebody says and then there's what somebody reacts to when it, when it comes back up. I, I think, and I think we see it a lot right now. I mean, you're seeing it with the Oscars, with the, the Kevin Hart, Kevin Hart. Deal. Guardians of the Galaxy is one of my favorite franchises. And James Gunn. James Gunn is, yes. is out. Yeah. You know, Louis I think they're using, yeah, Louis yes, Louis C.K. Yeah. So I think th it's tough. Um, it's it's a hard deal because the internet is so present. That might have happened X amount of years ago. I'm reading it now. Yes, and I'm attaching it to your name now. So I think that that is a newer phenomenon in the bulk amount of information. Yes. I think that's the new thing. There's always been people that say dumb things that come out later on. Yes. But the bulk amount of information, sure. If you dig into all our high schoolers, Twitter, Snapchat, Insta stories, everything, yes. 20 years from now, no, nobody's going to be suitable for office. It, yes. Because, because we're putting everything out there. So I think wise media use, I mean... You try to teach it because you, you we do want some of those people to have clean Twitter lives, I guess. Yes. But. You know what's what's kind of interesting, and I just thought about this, as as teachers in this day and age, you kind of have to be, you have to be social media savvy. Yes. And you have to help students understand what they're doing, because ultimately what you're doing as teachers is preparing them for the world. Yes. Right? I mean, you're, you're kind of doing the job of a parent yes. a lot of the time. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Uh, I'm definitely doing some parenting skills. Um, like, I take my job seriously. I try and do the best job I can every single day. Some days more successfully than others. But I went through a time last year where just illness ran through my house. Wife got sick. I got sick. I had young kids. They got sick. So I had to stay home when I was sick and for my kid. And one kid said something... And he was serious and he wasn't trying to make it as a joke, but it, like it broke my heart right there in class. He said, Mr. Thompson, where you been? I'm like, I've been sick. He's like, you've been gone a lot this week. He's like, it reminds me of my dad. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, for some of these kids, it was a reminder. I'm a positive adult role model in their lives. Sometimes they will tell me things that they won't get at home. Like I made a parent call to this one mom years ago and the kid was a sophomore. The kid was like 15 and wasn't getting his work done, was skipping school. And I called mom to let her know, no, he's, he's not showing up. He's not doing what he needs to do. Here's a path forward. And mom got mad and said, yeah, I told him if he's not going to concentrate in school, just drop out. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can't keep talking to her because her solution is horrible for him. Mm -hmm. And I've had kids like that before where, not like I'm some type of saver, they find teachers in the building who can connect with them or understand what they're going through and give them support. Um, I had a kid uh, last semester who came in, um, the ROTC, uh, JROTC teachers came in the class. They said, yeah, um, we forgot that 
uh, we wanted to honor you with your promotion. So they did it right there in class. They said, do you mind? I'm like, no, go for it. And she got the recognition and we clapped for her and everybody was happy. And I saw the smile on her face. She was embarrassed at first, but it made her feel good. And maybe she's getting it at home. Maybe she's not. But I'm not going to assume that any kid's getting it at home. Um, I've had times before where I keep snacks in the room. And like, yeah, they can go to the counselor and get snack. But if a kid's taking a test and their stomach's growling, they can't concentrate on that test. So I'll sit there and I'll pull out a bar. I'm like, hey, you want a bar? I'm like, yeah, great. Mm -hmm. And they can move on. And it's not something that they're abusing, but it's just he understands that I'm going through more than just what he sees in front of me. I don't load kids up with a ton of homework because, perfect example, I had a kid years ago, um, senior, wasn't coming to class, talked to mom. Uh, mom was kind of coy, not really talking about what was going on. Turns out the reason he wasn't coming to school frequently was because his mom was going through chemo treatments. But he didn't want to say anything. So he was working a full-time job at 18 to support his sister and his mom. And I'm like, hey, we can work with this. You just have to let me know. But we can't sit there and be the taskmaster all the time. Um, because again, school isn't their job. It's not the real world and it's not supposed to be yet. Um, teens aren't always well-equipped to deal with the tragedies in their lives. And they can't get past what's going on in their life to focus on World War II right now. Mm -hmm. um, I had a girl years ago, she got hit with gunfire. And that was a year ago, but she was still having some issues that she was dealing with. You know, obviously, I mean, when you think about how close you could come to dying, it may be hard to concentrate sometimes. Mm -hmm. But what do you do when you have that? And their only outlet is like a job like wife has is a is a school counselor because your family can't pay for therapy or can't pay for a psychiatrist. You know, so we have to wear a lot of hats. Um, but if the kids know that you're there for them, they can respect that. So I wrote this down and I, I thought about maybe not even mentioning it, but I think we're just, you know, we're at such a perfect spot to mention it and I'm sitting here with two teachers um, so I kind of have to bring it up. No problem. So mm -hmm. so Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy is proposing over 3 million to be cut from K through 12 education. I mean, what are you guys thoughts on that? I'll look at it in, in raw numbers. Like uh, I'm a teacher and I'm also a department chair. So we look at trying to staff people and bring in good teachers. It's hard to attract people to the state just in general. So we want to make sure we have quality teachers. Like in lower 48, you can cast a wide net. People are willing to move a couple states over. A lot of people aren't willing to necessarily move up here. But if they hear that there are constantly cuts and that teachers are getting pink slipped and what that does to somebody emotionally, I mean, imagine what it would feel like to be at your job and be told that through no fault of your own, you're going to be laid off. Okay. And now go back and teach the next day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what that does to someone psychologically. And I work hard uh, outside of that. I work hard to be a good teacher. But if they cut the number of teachers, I can't be as good as teachers I used to be because I can't make as many one-to-one -one personal connections if my class is full of a ton of kids and not every kid gets to participate. And just to put some numbers to that, uh, I read in the Anchorage Daily News that, that right now there are about 30 students per teacher. Yes. And with these cuts, it would mean 40 or more students per teacher. Yes. I think, I think a lot of the... Cuts that are proposed are a little bit of political saber rattling. I don't know how realistic those cuts could could be. Now, with that said, there's, there's no debate that the current administration does not appear friendly to funding of public education. Mm -hmm. And I think that the level in which it has come to pass, I'm not even certain that it's really been evaluated economically. 
as a feasible thing. I think that's a, it's it's kind of in a weird way to to bring world politics into it. It's almost like the Brexit. Like it yeah. was voted on with no plan. Yes. Well, this is like a budget with like, well, how are you going to cut that many things? It's it's almost impossible at that level. So I don't think that that's I'm not as scared about the current proposed budget. What I what I see as an educator is definitely um a zeitgeist in the current administration that says public education you're just gonna have to do with less and i don't know at what point the less becomes like like mike said the basis of what we do is connected relationships and and you keep increasing the numbers and you keep decreasing the amount of connected relationships right now anchorage school district is spending money on a program called capturing kids hearts yes i i believe in it i really like what it is i because i believe in the idea of connecting we have a an actual budget right now or a proposed budget that would be the opposite of allowing students uh, hearts to be captured by their teachers. And what does this program entail? So there's, there's a few things. There's a few uh, hallmarks of it that you would notice if you walked into a capturing kids heart school. One teachers are going to be in the hallway. They're going to greet kids at the doorway with, with a handshake or a fist bump or some type of connection and say your name, like, Hey, Johnny, good to see you today. Um, you know, I start my class off with a thing called good things. So every day I just say, hey, yo, tell me something good. Somebody tell me something good. That's the first thing we do in class before attendance, before anything else. Kids go around, we clap for them. Um, there's a few other things that, that go with it, but it all moves towards the idea behind it is all moving towards having teachers uh, create better relationships um, in the classroom. Because, man, if you if you do that, the, the teaching about World War II, yes. teaching about social studies, teaching about social media. Suddenly that kid's going to listen to you because he knows that you care about them. And and you know what? It kind of – the first time you do it, it might even seem a little fake and phony. But after you do it a minute and, like, this, the kids settle into it, they the kids will say, hey, you, you forgot good things. You know, and you're like, <laughs> nice. oh, man, yeah, yes. we did. Yeah. You're right. Tell me something good. And it'll be, it'll be something like, I got a pet goldfish today. Yeah. You're, like, you're like, okay. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, the budget cuts is, is a bummer. I'm concerned because I've had, like I've been teaching for a long time. I've, I've had classes before. There were 38, 39, 40. And I can see the attitude when they walk in the room that I'm going to be sitting here crowded where kids come in and like for the semester, they don't really have a place to sit. I have like chairs lined up on the wall. They're writing on textbooks. The kids start to be like, how is anybody valuing this if this is how I'm supposed to learn. Mm -hmm. And it gets tricky for some of the kids. You look at some of the textbooks, like for example, I don't really use the textbooks that much. And like, let's say up to, up until around three, maybe four years ago, the government textbook for the district for most kids was the presidential election series for 1996. So... Told. Yeah, so... Yeah, the Constitution never changes, but we need materials. Like, I'm I'm a veteran teacher at this point. I don't need some of these materials, but especially earlier on, especially when you're starting your career, you want to give newer teachers or teachers who are new to a subject as many tools as possible. And if they see something outdated or this falling apart, like when I started, kids were assigned textbooks. We don't do that, at least in social studies anymore, because we don't have enough. Each teacher has a class set. So what are we saying there? In terms of kids, okay, we want you to learn this, but we can't give you a book to take it home. 
when I think that that translates something to the the kids too, that yes, they're definitely. not important enough for the school district to provide them with textbooks that they need in order to give them an education. Yes. Yes, definitely. I'm concerned, like, for example, um, growing up in Waukegan, Illinois, um, the town right south of me is called North Chicago, Illinois. And they were a port community. And it wasn't necessarily just because there weren't a lot of jobs there, and there weren't, but they also had Great Lakes Naval Base and Fort Sheridan there. So they had a, lot of mil- a large military presence where a lot of people were living on base. So those are a lot of people who weren't paying property taxes for the school. So that school, in cost-cutting measures, they cut sports, they cut activities, they started cutting their music program, then they started cutting electives. So all the things that keep kids in school, that capture their interest, not every kid wants to be a historian or a mathematician or a scientist. Kids don't know what they want until they have an opportunity to explore it. If schools start going in that direction, I've seen what happened in terms of kids feeling like they're, they're falling behind academically and they feel like the state or the community doesn't care enough to pay for what they need. And it's even worse when they can compare it to a neighboring school and see that that school is getting what they need. But in Anchorage especially, if you keep cutting, kids feel it. Services start to drop. Morale starts to drop with the students and with the teachers. It's going to be a put up or shut up thing. Is education important or is it not? We pay for things that we value. Mm -hmm. And people are watching. The kids are watching. The kids notice too. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 